0: Welcome to Solutions for Higher Education, a podcast by Scott L. Wyatt, President of Southern Utah University in Cedar City, Utah. To subscribe to this podcast, please visit www.suu.edu forward slash President's Podcast, where you will find both the audio and a written transcript for today's podcast. Hi again, everyone, and welcome to Solutions for Higher Education, a podcast featuring Scott L. Wyatt, the president of Southern Utah University in Cedar City, Utah. I'm your host, Steve Meredith, and joining me again in studio today is President Wyatt. Hi, Scott.
1: Hello, Steve. It's nice to be with you this afternoon.
0: It's a beautiful fall afternoon in Cedar City, and uh, this is maybe my favorite time of year here. We have been sort of having an ongoing series of conversations uh, related to mental health, and uh, we have another guest with us here joining us by phone from Salt Lake City, and uh, we're excited to have her join us. Will you introduce her?
1: Yeah. Dr. Michelle Vo, thank you for joining us this afternoon.
2: Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to have this conversation.
1: So you are a psychiatrist. Yes. Yes. And uh, employed at the University of Utah in the medical school.
2: I am, yes. Um, In the medical school, I am the director of the student wellness program. Um, So we've really modeled the program after, I think, many programs that exist at multiple levels of higher education, um, where it's a multidisciplinary program. We have therapists. Um, I direct the medication management and uh, kind of overall team. And we're charged with the mental health of medical students and families at the University of Utah.
1: And you're certified um, in three different areas.
2: Yes, uh, I'm what's called a triple board physician. um, And that means that I have a board certification in the specialties of general pediatrics, um, general psychiatry, and child and adolescent psychiatry.
1: Okay, I think you're the perfect person for us to be talking about this.
0: Yes, not only because of your (laughs) academic training, but also because clearly, with all that work, you know all about stress and anxiety.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Certainly true from a personal standpoint, and I think you know one thing that I think I consider the program at the University to a a very successful program, and I think one of the reasons why we are successful is we kind of take this developmental approach that I think um, child psychiatrists and people who Um, see families and children do particularly well, where you see a person in terms of like not necessarily numbers, but like where they are in their life and what sorts of challenges they might be dealing with.
1: Um, Well, let's, uh, let's jump into this topic. It seems to us as we work in higher education, and each of the three of us have different roles, but all of them put us with students who are suffering from anxiety or depression, and all three of us worry about suicides and um, the wellness of our students. And um, it feels like this is becoming a bigger problem than it used to be. Does it seem that way to you?
2: It, it certainly does. I think when we look at, um, the utilization and engagement of, uh, just the medical students at the university of Utah, you know, people who make it to medical school are generally resilient people with grit and a lot of resources, both, um, intellectually and, you know, just as human beings and individuals, like these are not weak people. Um, but what we're seeing at the University of Utah is that we're seeing increasing numbers of students seeking services. Um, we currently have seen over half the student body and in just individual services alone, which, you know, is kind of striking. Yeah, that's um, a you, you just imagine um, just how many, how much suffering that probably represents. Is it, you, we don't have any illusion that we see everybody that's suffering. so. Um, So, so we are seeing very high numbers, unexpectedly high numbers of people coming um, with not just, you know, little problems, very, very real um, suffering, human suffering, depression, anxiety, things that are clinical, but also, um, you know, really difficult situations. So, so I, I, I really, I think you're right. I think we're seeing something that's unprecedented. Um and it's probably reaching what I think many people would call like an epidemic type proportion. Um, and so, so I think there are lots of different things we could talk about. Why, why is that happening? Why are these students in so much distress? And it's, and I think it's hard as somebody that cares a lot about young people to see this much suffering and wonder why, what is going on, what is going on? And how can we help?
1: Yeah. And you're dealing with, um, high-performing, very successful students in, that have been admitted to medical school and are yes. working through it. And, and we're seeing yeah. we have some graduate programs at Southern Utah University, but, but mostly we're working with undergraduate students, and they're in the whole range of, of students that are getting ready to apply to your medical school or right. um, or don't know what they're going to do with their lives. They're still trying to figure it out. Mm-hmm. And uh, we're seeing the same thing here—that it's just a continually growing problem. It, we keep adding um, additional mental health professionals, and the lines don't seem to be getting shorter. Mm-hmm. There's a waiting list all the time.
2: Right, and that—I mean—I think as somebody that is in administration, like that—that that phenomenon can very can be very distressing and confusing. Um, I I was just reflecting as you were describing the situation that you have down in Southern Utah university. Um, You know, I think, so I've been in this role for the last three years, they significantly increased the resources available for wellness of our students. um, As I was being appointed previously, it was just one psychiatrist um, with a few PhD psychology students, helping him with therapy. Um, And, They didn't see quite as many students. And I think, I don't don't know, you know, because I wasn't involved in the program before my appointment, but um, what what the Dean of Admissions told um, our Dean of Students when they hired me in um, the LCSW, who's my coordinator and my right-hand person, and basically helps me with all aspects of running this program in my life. Um, What he said was, because we were both coming from um, the division of child psychiatry, where he was also an appointed professor. So he said, "Okay, so when I went on my mission in France, we drove these Peugeots or like one of those French lemon cars. And, you know, I don't mean to be pejorative, but he was like, (laughs) we drove these (laughs) terrible cars and everybody kept getting in these accidents. Um, And so (laughs) the mission president decided to invest in these BMWs because he thought maybe that would make it safer. He's like, well, <laughs> that didn't end up decreasing <laughs> the prevalence <laughs> of accidents, actually, because people felt more confident um, in driving, and they were taking more <laughs> risks. So he's like, I have a fear that when we increase the, the resources, that it's going to be like investing in these BMWs, that actually the students are going to feel more like they can, uh, you know, let it all hang out, so to speak. So, (laughs) so I don't know how much validity there was to that hypothesis. It's hard to test that. But I think um, it's something that I do sometimes wonder about. It's like, okay, so, you know, are we so successful at decreasing the stigma? Um, Are we maybe calling more attention to something that in previous years, people might have just, you know, powered through? Um, And, and then what's, What's the utility of that, this coping strategy of, of powering through and just sucking it up? Um, I think those are all really interesting questions that I sometimes struggle with.
1: What do you think um, are the causes when, when Steve and I, and uh, we're quite a bit older than you, I think, Michelle, but when Steve and I were in college, there were my recollection as an undergraduate student at Utah State, is that there was um, one faculty member who taught psychology who also ran the wellness center, whatever mm-hmm. they call, whatever they called it. And there may have been a couple more than him, right? But clearly, um, it was small, right? Really small, and what's happened in the last twenty thirty forty years where we now find ourselves in Utah with the highest adolescent suicide rate mm-hmm. and um and uh working at universities where the the demand for services just keeps growing, and our students are continually in more need of help with mental illness or whatever their challenges are of anxiety and depression and so forth. What do you think has changed?
2: I think reflecting on potential changes, and I think it's probably, there are probably a lot of nebulous changes that we can't, they probably all coalesce together in some kind of interesting and difficult to discern way. But I think I think there are a couple things that are different for our students right now that are different than and and you may be right that we are of different generations. But I think about my own medical school experience, and uh, it was very similar to what you're describing, where there was one person that was sort of in charge of an issue if you had an issue. But the issue that you were supposed to go to this person for it better be a terrible issue. It never really occurred to us to reach out for some of the um, I think some of the issues that um, I think are valid issues um, and, and useful issues to work through, it just never would have occurred to us to do it because you just sort of coped in other ways. Um, but one thing I think about when I think about changes between generations is I think that um, the current generation of higher education students, I think they're potentially more isolated than previous generations. I think about just changes in medical practice and and teams in the hospitals. So for our not just the medical students, but the residents, the, the postgraduate, MDS that are also getting specialty subspecialty training. When I was a medical student, we we didn't have the electronic medical record. Um, we wrote all our notes on paper, and so you would round. You'd stay as a team. And then you'd come back to the team room and all be together, and you would write your notes, and and there would be a lot of a lot more dialogue. And when I went to residency, uh, the the medical record had become a thing, and and so rather than having everybody facing each other at the table, um, all sharing ideas and and engaging, um, everybody had their backs to each other, you know, typing on their computers and putting in orders. And so there was less interaction even on the team. And so I I think that potentially the students are more isolated than ever before. I think community is very important. And I think um, the effect of social media can't be understated. There's a lot that we know about social media, and how it affects mental health. It can be um, another stressor in the way that it's, it's an opportunity for people to engage in what we might call negative self-talk or negative cognitive distortions. So like, for example, comparing yourself to other people or perfectionism or, um, you know, you it's, know, it's int- sort of distorted thinking. Yes, yeah, I'm sorry. Uh,
1: no, no. I, it's interesting that you talk about social media. I have a couple kids who decided to turn off all their social media and they've told me that, um, they feel yeah. Better. They feel better. They actually feel yeah. better having done that. I,
2: I often recommend that students turn off social media when they're suffering. Um, I often recommend it when so the, the medical students have to take these licensing examinations. They're quite a big deal, and so um, I often recommend to them like this is another stressor, and this is a time where you want to minimize your stressors. And if social media is a stressor, then probably it's time to delete that app temporarily at least from your phone um and so i often will do that in a in a prescriptive type way um and uh i rarely hear that it was a detrimental thing most people um sort of needed that permission and so that's the other thing that i wanted to talk about that's maybe different for the students i think they're used to having a lot more guidance um and help along the way than previous generations and so um, so there's a lot more self-doubt than I think many of us dealt with when we were, um, you know, young people. Um, and I think there are there are a few cultural factors for that. Potentially parenting has shifted. Parenting practices have shifted to be more child-centered. And um, that's in many ways a good thing, but sometimes it can um, reinforce this idea of self-doubt um, that contributes to anxiety and depression and fear. And then I think, um, you know, there there's some other factors like economically, you know, I think you may have heard this generation of young people, they're not set up to do economically better than their parents' generation. And I think that weighs on a lot of the students um, in a way that I think many of us can't really understand. Um, and then I think uh, related to the social media, just like there are just, more influences the, the world is larger and it's you have more access to information and when you have more access to information, you have more access to um, potentially like fearful type intervention and, and so so I think I think there are lots of interesting cultural factors that are different between um, this current generation that might contribute to some of the um, distress that we're seeing.
1: So is
0: part of it that we're just less culturally sensitive to whatever stigma might have been attached to reporting a, a struggle with mental illness? Is that, is that part of it, Dr. Vo? We, we, you know, there in previous generations might have been a, a stigma to visiting a psychiatrist or a, a counselor of some kind, or right. or in your estimation, is it more that young people simply don't have the wherewithal anymore to power through? Because they've they've been, uh, as you suggest, guided uh, so much that you know when they got dropped off at college they feel a little bit lost.
2: Right. I think I think that probably, you know, I think it's probably like I have said, complicated and multifactorial. I think there are probably influences both. Um, at kind of a more micro level, so you know the family and how does the family interact and how does this person function, and then I think you're right. I think that there is a shift towards um, the decrease in stigma of seeking help. That um, potentially, they like, just as like I don't necessarily think that, for example, the the rate of autism has increased over the last several years. I just think that we as medical and mental health professionals have gotten better at identifying it earlier. Um, and there are um, better interventions. And so people are looking. Um, and so I think there's a little bit of that happening with depression and anxiety in young people too, where I, I, I do think that it's less shameful um, to admit that you're struggling um, with fear or self doubt or sadness, um, and so that I think certainly plays a role in some of the phenomenon that we're seeing. Um,
1: is, is it um, is it possible? This is um, this is such an interesting area to talk about. And 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 as you've been going through some of these um, factors that maybe be contributing, I'm looking at isolation and social media. Um, Seeking more guidance, economic challenges, all of those kinds of things. Uh, Sometimes I wonder if it's um, not limited to a generational issue, but everyone. Mm -hmm. I do wonder that, too. We've got so many people that I'm nearing 60, and um, I've got a thousand friends on Facebook that are my age. Mm-hmm. And they're on. Some of them are on Facebook all the time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, and and isolation. Uh, when I went to law school, as an example, uh, at the U. At your place. Mm-hmm. When I was at law school, we were doing research in the library with books. We had to go to a communal place to do our research. Mm-hmm. And now all the research for lawyers is done pretty much online by themselves, staring at a computer screen. Right. So, so the isolation issues that perhaps the adolescents are seeing might be similar to what um, those in my current generation see, along with social media and everything else. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm wondering if the if the same issues that the adolescents are seeing are, are being exhibited in, in um, the generation older than them, but the, the fact that the older generation is... Has more experience behind them, or more perspective, and so maybe it's not affecting them quite as much, or maybe it is. I don't know.
2: Yeah, I think that's really interesting, and I think you bring up a, an excellent point. Um, you know, I often wonder about technology and its influence on its unintended its unintended influence on um, our experience as human beings, our communities. Because, um, because I think people's lives, just in general, across the generations, have become fuller over the years, and so, so I think that some of the things that help keep us well sometimes fall by the wayside. We we sometimes take um, the need for community for granted, um, you know, with the day to day, and if you can sort of see how you might feel like you can connect with somebody on Facebook, but it doesn't really. Yeah, it doesn't really take the place of having a face-to-face, meaningful conversation. Um, I, look, I,
1: I look at my life and um, the amount of time I spend staring at a screen, answering emails, mm-hmm. and 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 it's me alone in a room, um, banging away at the keys, very impersonal, um, efficient responses. But if Great. I st- but if I stop and say this. I can answer this question more quickly with a phone call mm-hmm. or by walking over to somebody's office. I always mm-hmm. feel better. Yep. Yes. Because I've had yeah. that face-to-face conversation. I I feel like the issues resolve better and that that um our relationship is better than just a quick email.
0: Yeah, I, I agree with you. I talk with young people about this fairly regularly because I I actually teach in a music technology masters degree and it's delivered entirely online. We go way out of our way to engage the students in Skype conversations and other things where where they know what our faces look like and we know what their faces look like. It's 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 not quite the same as being in the same place, but we we try really hard for that for that very same reason. I uh, just uh, anecdotally last I think it was last Valentine's Day my my wife and I went out to eat and we were surrounded just happened to be surrounded by young couples on dates uh, for Valentine's Day and and it was mm-hmm. astonishing to us that both of the parties in those dates seemed to look more at their phone than they did at each other and Great. and I yeah, I was just you know I mean my wife accuses me rightly so of being too attached to my phone but I am able to put it down and and have a conversation, and I uh, I, I agree that that uh, maybe maybe one of the greatest causes of, of anxiety in young people would be to take their phone away. But it might be the best it might be the best vacation from technology they could have. Short term anxiety. That's Short-term. right. It would be a, right. yeah. it's It's I amazing.
2: Often, yeah, I often recommend that the the students unplug um, for many reasons. And it, it, you know, when you describe sitting alone in your office. Um, staring at a screen, typing emails. I mean, and I, I admit freely admit my bias as somebody that really enjoys working with people. it it does sound lonely and potentially depressing to be, you know staring at a screen all day. um and not to mention you know the potential ramifications of like you know the the blue light in the screen. I'm just gonna put my science hat on and say <laughs> that, does, that that might affect your yeah. um your circadian rhythms and your ability to sleep, which would affect your mental health anyway. So, so I often have that conversation with students too, because, you know, it can't be the importance of taking care of our bodies can't be understated. And I think that sometimes because of the technology that we have in medicine and in all areas of our life, we forget the simple thing, which is that like our bodies were built to be active um, our bodies were built to sleep. We, we need to restore ourselves. And, um, you know, staying up all night watching YouTube is not a sustainable lifestyle. Um, <laughs> so so I often um, will recommend unplugging from social media, but also just, you know, putting the phone down when it's dark outside and like our bodies were meant to be getting used to going to sleep. Um, that Those are interventions that I think sometimes people... People take that for granted, and then they they don't realize how how these little interventions, um, paying attention to the way our bodies are meant to work, can make a difference.
1: Um, the problem seems to be getting worse. Probably documentable worse, right? Mm-hmm. We know that suicide rates have gone up, mm-hmm. and uh, and we understand that Utah. Uh, where we all live has the highest adolescent suicide rate. Uh, how does that relate to college students? Because college students are chronologically beyond adolescent, aren't they? Or chronologically,
2: are they? <laughs> yes. I think. I mean, I don't know. I have a lot of questions about that. I think chronologically, the students that I see, we would expect them to be doing young adult. Type developmental things, and many of them are. Many of them are married and are starting families. But emotionally and socially, the the students sometimes are dealing with more issues that we would classically think of as adolescent issues, like like who am I, my identity formation. Um, sometimes they're experimenting in ways that you would expect an adolescent to do, um, and so 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 bringing it back to like kind of the general higher Education population, we we do know that you know in higher education there there are greater risks for um, things like depression and anxiety. I looked it up. It's you know depending on what data you look at, it's about a two to threefold increase than uh, in comparison to other uh, young adults over age eighteen that are not in college. um, For anxiety and depression risk is is, has increased, Um, and then the suicide rate is increased as well. Um, Also the the rate of alcohol abuse um, is a factor here that we can't really ignore. Um, I think substance use and abuse and the the higher education population is a big problem um, and predisposes people certainly to anxiety and depression.
1: Sometimes uh, alcohol and drug abuse is a cause, but sometimes it's a symptom, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Um, Self-medication. Are you suggesting that Adolescence has been extended.
2: I think it's certainly possible. Um, when I think about some of the things that the students come to us for, they they do they do some feel, feel familiar to me as somebody that is you know um, subspecialized in uh, child and adolescent psychiatry and pediatrics. That's that's a comfortable area for me, um, and I feel like I. I can understand that in a way that um, that feels familiar. Um, and, and when I think about that, it's like, these are young people in their mid-20s. So, <laughs> so there's certainly something about that, that, that I'm seeing young people in their mid-20s dealing with some things that I, I often talk about with people who are more adolescent age. Um, and so I, I would speculate that there is a subset of students that are very high achieving, that have focused very much on achievement and academic achievement, and other things they've maybe been guided um, in certain ways. And so their emotional and social development sometimes needs to catch up. Um, and so so that is something that I do see um, happening in my work, that sometimes we're helping students um, form their identities in ways that I don't necessarily think that previous generations had to deal with this late in their life.
1: Um. I'm thinking back at the time when I was in elementary school, and um, when in, in this discussion about adolescence and when does it end, and has it actually sort of been extended, or these kids' uh, social development um, a little bit slower, maybe because they're spending so much time on social media or some of these other things you talked about, but but I remember. Um, this is probably one of those classic, uh, I had to walk uphill both ways in the snow sort of stories. But <laughs> but, but literally, when I was a first grader, I walked a mile to school every day and back.
2: Right. Everyone
1: in my neighborhood did. There, there wasn't anybody that got a ride to school. We, we all got yeah. out on the street. We walked together as friends. And I'd sit there yeah. and wait for the, the kids up the street to come by. And then I'd go out and walk with them. And I don't know anybody that is sending a five-year-old to school to walk a mile today. They get they get taken, dropped off at the front door.
2: Right, uh, I can re- certainly reflect that. My son is a uh, second grader, and um, <laughs> and speaking of anxiety and parental anxiety, uh, you know, I, there was one evening where one of his friends came, and he left to go play at his friend's house. Something that I think many people would recognize from. Pre- but I remember saying to myself, like, is he old enough? And thinking to myself, wait a second. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, once upon a time when you were also in first or second grade, like, you hardly ever wore a seatbelt. <laughs> like you were what, what sitting is, in the front seat with your mom. Like, what is you know, a seatbelt?
1: No, seat no, that's right. We
0: didn't even. so.
1: My, so my, um, <laughs> my, mother, my mother grew up on a farm. She had her own horse at five years of age. When she was five, yeah. she had her own horse. Yep. That's um, amazing. And she could go anywhere she wanted to go. It was. It it feels like. Um, it, we're not growing up as fast.
0: Well, yeah, that that people <laughs> have become bubble wrapped, uh, and yeah, and, and, and that it's because of, because of that, when we're actually confronted with adult uh, issues and anxieties, there there may be a little bit less adept at dealing with them or less prepared to deal with them.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think it comes back to this idea of, you know, being privy to so much more information than maybe our parents or our, our generation where, you know, I think as a pediatrician, um, you know, my, my son will stay in his car seat in the five point car seat until, you know, he outgrows that car seat because, you know, the risk benefit ratio is, is favorable. Um, But, but if you, if you take that line of thinking too far, like I have to protect my child um, and do everything possible to minimize any sort of risk, the implicit message sometimes becomes the world is not a safe place for you um, and independence is scary. So, so I think that's, that's something that I think is a really interesting concept and a fine line to walk like how do you protect your child um, from risk but also help them self-actualize and develop into a functioning grown-up person um,
1: yeah well, an so, interesting idea so what do you what what do you think um there's two worlds here the one world is Uh, families, you know, what can parents, uh, guardians do to help children as they grow up and prepare to go away to college, um, to help them be more resilient or um, whatever it is that's causing uh, greater anxieties today than it used to. And then on the other hand, what can we do um, at universities to help the students that uh, we feel so much... um, obligation for to help them succeed in life?
2: I think to speak generally to both um, at first, and then we can, maybe I, I can um, dial down and, and speak to both populations. I think recognizing that as human beings, everybody has different needs, but ultimately we all have the need to become functioning adults and to um, function in our independence. And so, so what I would say to parents and what I would say to people um, in administration in higher education, that we do kind of have to accept where our young people are. So some of these young people might not have the skills, for example, to um, deal with conflict <laughs> face-to-face because they may have never had to do that um, in play or um, as young young adolescents or can, as people living at home.
1: They can break up a relationship with the text message.
2: Right. And, you know, I think to many of us that seems kind of bonkers um, yeah. and inappropriate and rude, but I think to many young people um, it's sort of become something that's socially acceptable. And so so I think I think meeting them where they are and recognizing when some, some of these phenomena might be creating issues and negative thinking or um, negative patterns of behavior and, and gently redirecting it. So, so first meeting people where they are and and recognizing and helping them um, build skills um, that they need to, to manifest their independence. Um, And I think the second thing, when we think about like, is there a role for prevention of mental health problems um, both in the family and, In education, I think there is. Um, I think it's it's a little bit trickier. But I think sometimes in mental health, we become so focused on treatment that we start to see everything as a problem, Um, rather than you know this is just where this person is in their development. And so, so what I often find myself pondering is, is there a way that we can pay more attention to community building so that people feel less isolated? Um, and they can build some of the skills that they may not have built yet. Um, so 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 one of the things that we're, we're looking at at the University of Utah and the wellness program is like, yes, we have to provide services individually. I think there's still, even though we've talked about how the stigma of mental health has decreased and we have, I think evidence that that is happening, there's still, I think a tendency for the students to, not want to engage in groups. Um, So for example, like our group therapy type interventions, they're sort of hit or miss. Everybody thinks that they're struggling and they're the only one that struggles when like literally we know that more than half the student body is struggling enough to come see us. Um, And so, so how do we shift the community and the culture so that people can join in these experiences, learn from each other and build their skills? That is something that I think um our program that's sort of our charge over the next few years that I'm fairly excited about um, but it is it is sort of an intellectual and um, programmatic challenge like how do you shift a culture? there, um,
1: there seems to uh, there seems to be a lot of evidence that is uh, you know the science of wellness and happiness that mm-hmm. a lot of research going on yeah and it and it seems that one of the real key components to living a happy life is to have good relationships
2: yes that cannot i think that can't be overstated i really do think that um, having a community and paying attention to what values are manifested in your community can go a long way Um, and when i say community i mean both like the higher education community so our campuses but i think that for the parents that are listening there are these little communities within our families that I think we can, we can pay more attention. And this is the kind of area where you don't have to completely shift everything that you're doing. Sometimes a small intervention can go a long way, like plugging in the phones at the end of the day. And so that the phones aren't present at the dinner table and everybody joins together in some some type of gratitude exercise, like sharing the best part of their day um, and really, you know, making eye contact and, being present with each other can go a long way to helping people feel less isolated and alone.
1: You know, I wonder um, if that's something that's changed, because I remember when I was a kid, we all had dinner together and we all had breakfast together. And today yeah. it's it's far less common.
0: That's yes, an interesting think...
1: suggestion. So what you're <laughs> suggesting is for families to um, create um, times when everybody's together. Um, yeah. On, on a more frequent basis, interacting with each other, caring about each other, listening to each other's stories, get rid of the phones during those times. Dinner, having yes. dinner together.
2: Yes. It sounds so basic, but I think that sometimes if we don't pay attention to it, some of the other influences in our lives, we we live such full, busy, modern lives um, that are sometimes overprogrammed. Um, something as basic as like putting the phone away and having dinner as a family. sometimes sometimes you think about it you're like I don't even remember it's because you've been so busy it's hard to prioritize that unless you willfully and set an intention to do so and I think that is one thing that like you know no one could argue that that's not helpful for a family or a community to connect um periodically I think there's there's a certain mystique or kind of fairy tale thinking that like positive things or fun or enjoyment of each other or joy needs to be spontaneous um i don't i don't think it necessarily needs to be that way often it's very very helpful to structure that and to plan it into your busy life and so that is if there's anything that i think anybody can do on any level So really take a look at the structure of how our lives are being lived and how our professions um, are going about our work. Um, And are there ways that we can get up away from the computer, have the conversation in person um, or have that meeting in person or um, have that dinner in person with the phone um, plugged in and charging? I think that can go a very, very long way.
1: Yeah. My wife listens to these and she's going to tell me about this. She's well, insegnuping. You, you, you remember when you were talking about having dinner as a family? Get home in time for dinner. Like
2: she has very good ideas.
1: <laughs>
2: yeah. I'm fully supportive of that. I think that's really, really important.
1: <laughs> so that's one of the really big things that we can be doing uh in our families and in our small relationships is um is increasing this social time when we visit, talk, celebrate little things, express gratitude.
2: Right, I agree. I think that's that's very important. It can, I think, like I said, go a long way, um, even though it sounds so basic and trivial.
1: Well, sometimes uh, getting back to the basics is the best answer to a lot of questions. <laughs>
2: sometimes it's elegant.
1: Yeah, that's right. Um, what other things would you have as, a, as suggestions for us.
2: Um, so we talked about sort of these micro, micro cultures and families and smaller interactions, which I think are really important. I think it's important as people who are leaders to build on that when we're building systems, um, we can't take the importance of community for granted. Um, so I think that we can leverage technology to work for us um, in that way. I think there there was maybe a period of time, like I described earlier, where people um, took the importance of being face to face for granted. I think that now we're starting to reach an inflection point where people are starting to realize, like that that's not that's not a joyful way to live or to work. And so when when we think about building systems or building programs or um, growing our institutions. I really think people who are leaders, I really encourage people to think about the importance of relationships and communities and, and what are we doing in our institutions that help support the growth of that. That's It's sometimes very difficult to advocate for that because I think everybody, everybody I think on some level recognizes that that's important, but I think we often take it for granted. And so, so for example, are we building new systems where people have opportunities to interact with each other um, in meaningful ways, or or are we building institutions where people are more likely to be isolated from each other?
1: You know, this is this is so interesting. I recently completed a multi-stage marathon race. Uh, Congratulations. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. The the the
0: 175 miles. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> some crazy thing.
1: So the it's it's called the Grand Grand Ultra. But mm-hmm. but one of the things that I dreaded was that uh it's a self-support race where we have to take everything with us, our food and and it and it mm-hmm. went for 7 days. But one of the things that I dreaded was that the team um the organizers of the event provided tents and assigned us to tents and uh and that meant that I had to share a tent with four people that I didn't know mm-hmm. um, but by the end of the week, that was the highlight of my trip. Mm-hmm. Um, my natural tendency was to to want to be alone in my thoughts and to and to not have the complication of. Figuring out how to change my clothes in a tent when there's all these other people in the tent and all the other kind of things and listening to snoring and right. making sure I've got my earplugs and so forth. But but at the end of the week, it ended up being the highlight of the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Was the was the time that I spent with all these new people. So we we have also found this true with student housing that students tend to want a condominium style housing. Unit right. where they have their own bedroom and their own bathroom, uh-huh. but students that end up being for whatever reason um, in an apartment where they have to share a room or share a bathroom or share a kitchen or go to the cafeteria to eat their food, they they actually tend to be happier. They didn't want that, but that makes them happier because it forces them out of their cocoon into a more social environment. Mm. Right. Uh,
2: I don't think, yeah, that doesn't surprise me at all. I think, I think it's, it's funny because I think that there, there there's certain, there's certain things that we tell ourselves that like, we think we want, like, you know, we, we don't want to deal with like the possibility that somebody might be snoring or that like, I might hate my roommate or, um, or, you know, they might, I don't know. Yeah. All those college dramas, right? <laughs> so like right? Probably the path of least resistance is to avoid it all. Yeah. But I don't think that that is a helpful or healthy way to go mm-hmm. about living. Um, and sometimes we have to take risks. And so, um, so yeah, I think that's super interesting. And I like, yeah, I think I could talk all day about, you know, how do we build the- systems and institutions so that we support healthy Interactions and healthy behaviors.
1: Yeah. We've talked about some of the causes of the increase in anxieties, uh, depression, all these factors, uh, including isolation, social media, um, needing too much guidance, um, other kinds of things. And we've talked quite a bit about um, the need to reduce isolation and perhaps the need to reduce some of the social media, get people engaged more. With respect to guidance, um, how do we help our young people, whether it's our children or our students, take more ownership in their decisions? That, that seems to yeah. be one of those factors.
2: I think that's a mystery for those of us in higher education, right? Because you, know, when you think about learning any skill, like for example, if you have a child that's learning how to walk, you know, I, I often say to parents like, you, you want, you don't, when we're learning skills or dealing with the depression and anxiety, you don't want your infant learning how to walk outside on the 12 concrete steps where they could fall and like really injure themselves. You want them like, you know, doing, practicing walking and in, in the carpeted living room, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, where, where the risks are lower. And so, so I think, um, when it comes to helping people build their independence, I think of it sometimes in terms of skill building in a similar way where um, ideally I think people would be testing their independence um, at earlier ages in the bosom of their family with safety, right? Uh, Sometimes we deal with young people as you know, like that haven't had those experiences. And so we have to think about are there ways that we can help support them um, in higher education to test their independence and get exposure. Really, when you think about treatment for anxiety, the best um, non-pharmacological treatment is exposure. Um, the just being exposed to the thing that makes you anxious is almost always it's the anticipation um, and the fear associated with it. That's worse than actually
1: It's never as going bad as about.
2: It's never as bad as we think. Yeah. Um, it, there's always so much more heartache and fear leading up to it. And so, so the best treatment for anxiety is exposure. And so notice I said exposure and not flooding. So like, you know, our psychology colleagues would say like, it's not flooding, which is that like, you know, if you're scared of spiders that you immerse yourself in them. Um, it's that like, you know, if you're, if, if being alone or being on your own makes you anxious, if independence itself makes you anxious, then, probably, it's important to test that out and maybe not put yourself in a situation where you're uh, living in a condo on campus with no roommate and um, not a lot of skill to
1: make interact and, and make mm-hmm.
2: friends and, and build these relationships on your own. Or maybe it's important to find um, a safe group of people that share interests with you um, so you can start building. Your social network that's protective. Um, so, so I think I think it's important to think about this kind of graded exposure and um, exposure to things that make us anxious and building skills. So, so that's what I would maybe say in terms of guidance. And, and that I think, like we said, it. And I think we're all acknowledging here that it's it's in many ways the three of us are sort of thinking outside our box it's it's kind of it's unusual for us to conceive of an idea that like somebody could be in college or in medical school and um very anxious about what we would think of as normative um, developmental experiences of adulthood
1: yeah well this has been this has been such a fascinating discussion it's um the core of what all three of us are doing is trying to help Um, our students be successful and uh, some of these mental health challenges are making it difficult for them to be successful and move into full adulthood but I know a lot of adults that are trying to figure out how to be adults (laughs) right I think
2: it's sort of the human condition I think we just happen to have a very intimate view of what our students struggle with and and I think it's very clear. You both care so much about these young people. Um, and yeah, I think it's just really encouraging to have this conversation and and very interesting. So I really appreciate it.
0: You've been listening to Solutions for Higher Education, a podcast featuring Scott L. Wyatt, the president of Southern Utah University in Cedar City, Utah, We've been joined on the phone today by our guest, Dr. Michelle Vo. She's the Director of Student Wellness for the University of Utah Medical School. Thanks to Dr. Vo, and thanks to all of you for listening. We'll be back again soon. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Solutions for Higher Education. To subscribe to this podcast, please visit www.suu.edu forward slash President's where you will find both the audio and a written transcript of today's podcast. The original music for this podcast was composed by Jack Barton, a master's degree student in music technology at SUU. For more information about Southern Utah University, please visit www.suu.edu dot edu.